do believe there's consolidation in this industry. My long-term thesis is that care management capabilities ultimately have to become a core competency of the large managed care plans. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cowan's Thematic Podcast. I'm Bill Bird, head of thematic content at Cowan, and I'm really excited to be here with Gary Taylor, Cowan's senior analyst for healthcare facilities, managed care, and emerging payer providers. Each month, our thematic podcast discusses areas of emerging growth and disruptive innovation, topics that are of pivotal interest to investors and corporate executives. The raw materials for the themes we'll unpack are Cowan's proprietary data sets and Cowan's Ahead of the Curve series, where so much of our thematic work is expressed throughout the year. Today's topic is value-based care, which is one of the highest growth subsectors in healthcare. BBC brings into play business model transformation, potentially competing for trillions of dollars of healthcare spending, and where Cowan believes the market has hit an inflection point. Before we dive in, I'd like to provide some background on our guest, Gary Taylor. Earlier this year, Gary published a widely read ahead of the curve report called, called Value-Based Care, The World Turned Upside Down. The report makes the case for an acceleration in BBC, and its thesis is supported by a proprietary roundtable with 16 key opinion leaders. Payment model innovation, and more specifically, VBC, was one of three healthcare services megatrends highlighted by Gary last fall when he joined Cowan. Gary is a veteran healthcare analyst with 28 years of experience across research, banking, and consulting. He brings a unique perspective. Gary has the most comprehensive coverage list of all recent emerging, innovative, disruptive companies in the healthcare facilities and managed care sectors, and he also covers legacy providers. Gary, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Gary, for the benefit of some of the journalists who are listening, how do you define value-based care? Yeah, value-based care is really about redesigning the payment of healthcare and the delivery of healthcare oriented around the quality of care being provided and the cost of care being provided. And that may sound very natural to the uninitiated, but it's really quite different from how healthcare is delivered and paid for in the U.S. today, which is primarily around what we call a fee-for-service payment model where every stakeholder in the system, physicians, hospitals, ambulatory providers, labs, et cetera, et cetera, they all currently maximize their economic models and revenues by providing the highest volume of service at the highest price point in the highest acuity. So value-based care is really around redesigning financial incentives so those stakeholders are oriented to provide higher quality and lower cost. Gary, the U.S. is the only industrialized nation that attaches your healthcare to your employment, and a lot of good and bad things stem from that. U.S. healthcare delivery and financing have suffered from structural flaws for a long time now. The big question on new payment models is why now? What are you seeing that gives you confidence that the market is beginning to tilt in BBC's favor and away from fee-for-service? I think there's four key reasons that we're looking at now. One is um, the government, federal government, is the single largest payer of, of healthcare, covering 80 million people in Medicaid, 70 million people in Medicare, uh, roughly 15 million people in subsidized coverage in, in individual market Obamacare plans. 
the government has established goals that support increased penetration of value-based care. Since the ACA, the Affordable Care Act back in 2010, our Obamacare was passed, uh, the government has created an innovation center that has uh, promulgated demonstration projects, payment models, but now has explicit goals, which I think we'll talk about a little later, to put um, all of Medicare beneficiaries in value-based care arrangements by the year 2030 and the majority of, of Medicaid. So clearly the first reason is the government is leading and they're leading in an accelerated fashion over the, la over the last decade. Uh, the second reason is the next largest payers of, of healthcare are, are the uh, commercial insurance companies. And clearly we're seeing those companies promulgate changes in payment models along the lines of value-based care and also engaging in vertical integration to participate more directly uh, in value-based care. Third, um, absolutely, there's accelerated formation of independent risk-bearing physician groups, uh, value-based care companies. We've seen a lot of those come public in the last 18 months or so, and there are many more private companies uh, being, being formed. And so the emergence of these companies uh, is driving towards that addressable market opportunity. And then finally, I would say macro, and I think you could always talk about macro being a factor, but each year that goes by, the macro becomes more important. And when I mean macro, I'm talking about aging of the U.S. population, uh, the silver tsunami, if you will, the fact that the Medicare program is $40 trillion underfunded on a present value basis, the fact that every 100 basis point increase in the 10-year treasury rate represents about 25% of the total Medicare annual budget. The, these macro numbers, these demographics and, and the financial um, condition of our entitlement programs really necessitate, create an imperative eventually to change the, the productivity and the cost of providing those services. Gary, one of the drivers you referenced was government goals. Maybe we could go a little bit deeper on that. CMS has established a goal to have every Medicare and the majority of Medicaid enrollees under a VBC arrangement by 2030. How do you think about that goal and what do you think will be required to reach it? Yeah, when we think about getting there in the Medicare program, so getting basically all of Medicare beneficiaries in there, about 60% of Medicare beneficiaries are in traditional government-run Medicare, and only about 40% of those beneficiaries today are in value-based care programs. So there's a lot of movement that has to happen there. The other 40% are in Medicare Advantage plans, and probably 80% of those beneficiaries are in uh, value-based care arrangements. So, so combined, the government, federal government, uh, you know, Medicare is probably roughly 50% in value-based care arrangements today, or at least in two-sided risk arrangements today. So there's still a lot of movement just on uh, the Medicare side. Clearly, the government is going to have to continue to support the ACO pro program, the Accountable Care Organizations. They're going to have to support the new direct contracting program that just began last year. And they're going to have to support, and by all this, I mean through, um, through funding, uh, and through regulation, but also support the Medicare uh, Advantage program. And that, that's more controversial with more progressive uh, Democrats, but the reality is MA, Medicare Advantage, is a key driver of value-based care 
and government programs and really needs to have sustained um, financial uh, support. On the Medicaid side, it's, it's much more um, difficult. Uh, the goal is only to get to 50% or the majority or 51% by 2030. But the penetration rate is far less now because the states with government support run their own Medicaid programs, which means there's 50 different iterations of what a Medicaid program um, could look like. And there are lots of small demonstration projects happening in Medicaid. But really to move that market as quickly as 2030, besides financial incentives, I think there's really going to have to be some federal mandates that require states to move um, in that direction. So unlike Medicare, which has a lot of momentum already, and you can sort of see how they might get there, Medicaid, I think, really is going to require some legislated mandate to, to accelerate the pace of adoption. Gary, how do you think about some of the other sources of friction to adoption? What, what are some of the key obstacles and adoption challenges that will have to be overcome for the market to really scale? Yeah, it's mostly, it's mostly the entrenched stakeholders. So, you know, maybe think about that in three or four different ways. Um, first, if we just say broadly entrenched stakeholders, we think about um, hospitals who potentially have a lot to lose from value-based care. If, if value-based care successfully executes on the goal of reducing emergency room admissions and, and reducing unnecessary hospital admissions and successfully shifting um, site of care to lower cost, uh, lower acuity um, sites of care. So the hospital industry, which is fairly powerful um, industry lobby, perhaps the second most powerful, you know, healthcare lobby in the U.S., isn't necessarily fully supportive of of, of value-based care. So, so in some cases, they present a headwinds. But this is also true in the physician community. So, when we think about physicians who resist change in general because they're doing just fine, uh, who remember the 1990s failures of physician practice management companies and value-based care there's still some reticence with the concept even inside of the physician community. And for those that aren't reticent, there's a scarcity of physicians that have been trained in practicing longitudinal patient care that's required for value-based care. There's also a scarcity of physician groups that have actuarial risk-taking um, capabilities. So some of this is skin in the game. Some of this is financial incentives that might be at risk. And, and some of this is just core capabilities that need to be um, built to pursue the opportunity. Gary, let's talk about the size of the opportunity. Uh, given the size of our healthcare system, it sounds like the addressable opportunity is enormous. How do you size that addressable opportunity? And what kind of growth rates are you seeing? You know, ultimately, we're spending almost $4 trillion on healthcare in the U.S. So, that is the end game. Uh, if you had all commercial patients or enrollment, all Medicare, all Medicaid in uh, value-based care arrangements that were truly two-sided risk arrangements, the ultimate TM is $4 trillion. We think the market size today is less than $100 billion in true two-sided value-based care actuarial risk arrangements. Uh, the Medicare market is farthest along. Uh, we think perhaps 20% of the Medicare market is penetrated in this way. Um, so from less than $100 billion today, just the Medicare market alone is a trillion-dollar 
opportunity. Total U.S. is that $4 trillion number. The companies that we see that are engaged in pursuing the opportunity um, are generally guiding for producing, targeting, top-line revenue growth rates in the 20 to 50% range. So it's a really sizable opportunity. Um, the growth is really only constrained by the company's ability to scale and execute against that growth opportunity. Um, the market is, is, is really uh, large at this point. Gary, let's talk a little bit about some of the players in the sandbox. Who are the major players in the space? What types of players do you believe are at greatest risk of disruption? And, and as you think about how the space may develop, how do you see uh, the market developing, including M&A? Wide range of, of players participating. When, when you talk about something you know, as, as large as you know, a 4 trillion total US you know, healthcare market opportunity, you can imagine there's a lot of different players that are um, engaged in pursuing this opportunity. Some of the most obvious are the large managed care companies. Uh, United Healthcare uh, is a leader with what they're doing with OptumCare, uh, over 60,000 affiliated uh, physicians pursuing value-based care arrangements across all lines of business at OptumCare. Uh, Humana, which is a Medicare Advantage Pure Play, operates Conviva and Centerwell. These are primary care clinics where the physicians practice and are reimbursed in a value-based care model. Uh, Anthem has a, a similar but smaller um, clinic model called CareMore. Um, so almost all of the large payers, and we, and we see the nonprofits as well. I'd be remiss not to mention some of the blues that are beginning to make investments in, in value-based care uh, physician um, networks. But you also see, you know, what we'd classically call, you know, drugstore companies. So, you know, Walgreens um, made a majority investment in Village MD uh, last December. Uh, CVS has recently announced that they want to acquire and operate initially two to three hundred centers uh, by 2024. And then you also have offshoots where um, the, the large major dialysis companies uh, in, in the U.S., the, both, both sides of the U.S. dialysis uh, duopoly, uh, DeVita and Fresenius Medical Care, uh, are building integrated models to take uh, financial risk, actuarial risk, and uh, on value-based care for their special high-acuity ESRD uh, populations. And then, of course, you have the sort of standalone independent risk-bearing provider groups that are pursuing um, this opportunity exclusively. So there are clinic models like Oak Street and Cano and CareMax and many, many more privates. And then there are affiliate models that affiliate with existing physician practices to enable those practices to move to value-based care. So companies like Agilon and Privia and Apollo, uh, private companies, um, Allidade, uh, Village MD, and, and many other privates um, uh, as well. Long term, uh, you know, we asked about you asked about M and A and what we what we think. Uh, I do believe there's consolidation in this industry um, long term for sure. Um, our thesis, my long term thesis, is that care management capabilities ultimately have to become a core competency of the large managed care plans. And we think those plans ultimately can be an acquirer of many of these independent risk-bearing uh, provider group 
um, assets. And of course, we're seeing some of that already. That's exactly what OptumCare is doing already. That's exactly what CVS has told the market that um, it expects to do. But when we think about large U.S. health insurance companies have created value over the last 20 years through uh, enormous consolidation, using that to pressure providers on rates, pursuing a spread pricing model where if underlying healthcare utilization trends are 5%, premiums go up six. If trend is seven, premiums go up eight. That value proposition, we don't think is sufficient over the next decade plus. We think all the stakeholders, whether they be federal government, state government, employers, uh, offering employer-sponsored coverage, are demanding a more powerful value proposition from the payers. And you're going to have to be able to reduce costs and deliver higher quality, which makes these, which makes value-based care and companies that are skilled at value-based care, ultimately very attractive assets to the insurance companies that will need these as, as core capabilities. Gary, as you look at the next one to two years, what if any are some of the things you think may be underappreciated by investors? And, and may have a chance of occurring in 2022 or 2023? I think a few things there, maybe maybe two or three things. The first is just the sustainable growth rates we think are underappreciated by investors today. So we look at the pure play value-based care companies trading at parity EV to sales multiples with legacy providers, but these new value-based care companies are, are growing the top line, growing revenue 20 to 50%, as I said, the legacy providers are growing revenue mid to high single um, digit. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to us that they would trade at parity uh, enterprise value to sales uh, valuations. And given that 20, 30, 40% revenue growth, the sales multiples that might look rich today, very, very quickly look a lot more attractive, cheaper, lower, if you fast forward a couple of years with that level of revenue growth um, compounding. So I do feel like the sustainable revenue growth rates are underappreciated. You know, two, I think there will be an increased appreciation for the companies that are doing real care um, delivery redesign are really changing the practice of primary care um, and how often and how frequently and by what nature they're interacting with their patients versus companies that are more oriented towards financial arbitrage, risk coding, um, et cetera. The sustainable models will have to be very skilled uh, and oriented and focused on redesigning care delivery. Um, and then finally, um, maybe somewhat underestimated still, despite the recent um, announcements, is the strategic interest that there's going to be in this in the space. The, the large payers having the strategic imperative to invest in these core competencies that I just described, as well as the, the tendency of the large health insurance companies really to largely imitate what they see United doing. Uh, and United as an industry leader building the largest and most vertically integrated value-based care um, entity or business, you know, at OptumCare is something that we think we're going to continue to see a lot of the health insurance companies um, copying and, and pursuing as a strategy. Gary, what are the things you're watching as you gauge the development of the future of the market? Yeah, probably three things right now that are key. First is maybe a little nearer term, and it's just post-COVID execution. A lot of noise the last couple of years because of COVID 
impacting health spending, but also impacting the ability of the value-based care companies to really execute on their business models. A key part of their business model is you see that patient in primary care much more frequently. You interact with them through your case managers much more um, frequently. And this increased dose of primary care is what bends the cost curve downstream and reduces the downstream need for higher acuity services. That business model was interrupted for a couple of years to some degree, uh, particularly in the Medicare population. Seniors were fearful of, of um, the virus for obvious reasons. They were homebound and your ability for physicians to touch and interact with those patients is more limited. So it's created a fair amount of, of volatility around third-party medical spends, medical loss ratio, the metrics that we're track, uh, tracking for these value-based care companies. So just knock on wood, you know, the post-COVID execution of the business model is a key thing uh, from a near-term perspective that uh, we're paying attention to. Uh, the second would be the development of the direct contracting program. So this is a new program that CMS uh, started April of 2021. Um, it essentially triples the addressable market for two-sided actuarial risk in the Medicare market because it allows entities to pursue that risk in the traditional fee-for-service Medicare population, not solely in the Medicare population that's elected to a role um, in Medicare Advantage. So that program began April of 2021. June of 22, this year, in a couple months, is the first financial reconciliation with CMS of the profits for that model. So whatever the companies participating in that model have accrued thus far as revenue, costs, earnings, et cetera, June is the first true reconciliation of that with CMS. And we are optimistic about the growth an opportunity for that model, but obviously, obviously it's very early days and that first reconciliation is going to be important to our go forward view. And then finally, just to reiterate, um, I feel like I've said it a couple of times already, but just the strategic activity around the space. So, you know, CVS in particular, the market is sort of waiting to see who they're going to acquire. They've, they've told the market they intend to acquire primary care clinics. They haven't said if that would be publicly traded companies or private uh, companies. So, it's one of the most anticipated events that uh, we're waiting to, to see the strategy that CVS ultimately pursues. Gary, looking ahead, what are some of the marquee events or expert calls that you plan to host related to this theme? Well, it's an important theme. We're going to attempt to um, remain uh, visible on it. Um, our Futures Health Conference is coming up June 22nd to 23rd uh, of this year. And uh, it'll be my first opportunity to participate in that conference. And our intention is to bring more of these value-based care sort of disruptive uh, models to participate in that uh, conference just in a couple uh, months here. Uh, we've also been engaged in a periodic value-based care call series. So last month we had a call with Liz Fowler, uh, director of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid uh, Innovation. Uh, the month before, we had a call with a value-based care uh, consultant, so we intend to periodically continue that call series um, where we'll host and moderate a discussion. Clients can uh, dial into that. Um, Non-deal roadshows, we recently had Keno. Um, next week, we have Privia. You'll continue to see us with value-based care companies on the road over the course of the summer. 
And then four, and maybe most exciting, um, we, we anticipate uh, over the summer and into the fall, some, some site visits um, to some of these uh, new companies and clinic models as travel has sort of reopened for folks post-COVID. I think there's an opportunity to, um, to uh, get wheels on the ground, so to speak, versus sort of the virtual environment that, that we've been living in. So uh, we look forward to hosting some events like that. As we wrap up today's podcast, I want to thank Gary for sharing his thoughts and everyone for taking time out to listen. Be well and see you next month.